These may be challenging times, but have hope and listen to the untold health stories about incredible people who have committed their lives to better their communities. Diverse health activists, direct medical providers, community organizers that are helping our communities to get healthier and stronger. Stories of local heroes during the pandemic and even before that proves over and over again that people can come together during times of need and make the world a better place. Stories you would never hear of, except at Healthcare Untold, hosted by Barbara Ann Garcia. Our guest today is Richard Raya, who is the Chief Strategy Officer for the Mission Economic Development Agency in San Francisco. Uh, welcome to Healthcare Untold, Richard. Barbara, I'm really honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's such a great honor for us to have you today. You know, your work and commitment to racial justice and the work you're doing on behalf of the Mission Development Agency is really exciting. Uh, but I wanted to start by asking you about the role of a strategy officer. I really like that concept. And it seems like community-based organizations, even private organizations, are really seeing this as a real way to kind of plan for the future. So why don't you tell us about that? But we really want to hear about your background and how you grew into this role. Okay, um, sure. Um, so uh, my family has lived in California for over 100 years. Um, they came, like many Mexican-Americans, during the, uh, the revolution, the Mexican Revolution. In fact, my great-grandparents uh, rode alongside Pancho Villa uh, in Sonora. Uh, they were Yaqui, indigenous people. Um, but the devastation of war uh, was just too much, so they, they moved to California and uh, worked in the fields. Um, my parents worked in the fields as well, uh, the canneries of the South Bay and, and the Central the Central Valley. Um, and uh, I, uh, I kind of, they came of age in, during the Chicano movement. So by the time I was born, I was really kind of steeped in this um, social world of social justice um, and uh, racial justice. And um, I ended up my, I, I grew up with a single mom uh, and, and my little brother and my little sister, and we were homeless at times. And I ended up dropping out of high school because of that. Um, but uh, along with my mom, went to community college um, that she was a dropout herself. And we both went to community college at the same time. And she That's transferred. Great. <laughs> That's yeah, great. thank you. Mm -hmm. She transferred to UC Santa Cruz and I went to UC Berkeley. And um, eventually got my master's in public policy there. But my whole mission from that point on was how do I um, change the system? How do I reform the system from the inside out so that um, young people like myself and, 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 and people like my mom who clearly have the ability, the capacity, the desire to, to learn and to contribute to society how, how can I create a system, help create a system that um, creates avenues for us so that we don't, um, you know, necessarily drop out of high school um, or, or, you know, or, or things take this kind of circuitous route to, to the university. So that's been my mission is how do I get um, systems to work together? How do I get the school district, the city, community-based organizations and residents to really be connecting with each other? Um, and that's, um, I worked in government for uh, more than a decade, uh, public health, social services, and always was experiencing this kind of siloed way that government agencies work and was frustrated by it. And also this, the difficulty of 
um, holding ourselves accountable as a bureaucracy, accountable to measurable results, holding ourselves accountable to the community, to the residents who might need our services the most. So I eventually made my way into the um, community development arena and, and, and META. And META had this special program called the Promise Neighborhood, Mission Promise Neighborhood, um, which was a federally funded education initiative. But at the same time, it was a community building initiative because the way that we would measure our academic outcomes was by also just looking at what is the impact of housing and health on the academic outcomes of uh, the children in our community. Um, so it's this very kind of holistic, collaborative approach. You're working with other nonprofits, you're working with the city, school district, um, et cetera. Um, and so to, to make a long story short, to kind of explain how I became, went from the director of this promised neighborhood to the chief strategy officer and why we created the, the chief strategy officer role was because our community through this promised neighborhood, not unlike other communities around the country, we were seeing the role that nonprofits play in um, kind of helping government evolve and helping uh, relationships evolve between government and the school district and the community. And what was happening here in the Mission District footprint could actually um, inform bigger changes, not only in the city, but the state and the country. And so we felt like the, the CSO role, the chief strategy officer role would help us take a step back and look at where our community experience fits in the national experience and, and how can we contribute to the national experience and how can we learn from the national experience and how can we help us all kind of evolve towards a more community-centered, um, data-driven, uh, accountable approach to, to service delivery, but also to community transformation. Um, and so that was how we evolved into this role. And it's been exciting, Barbara, because I get to um, share the story of what we're doing here in San Francisco. Um, but I also get to meet other communities around the country that have um, similar stories to tell um, and similar, similar lessons to share. And it, you start to realize that um, we're part of a movement um, and uh, you just feel the momentum kind of growing little by little, especially, and sometimes by leaps and bounds, especially as we become more, as a society, more aware and more comfortable addressing um, the racial injustices that, that, you know, have existed for hundreds of years in this country. And so we see our work as part of the, um, the social justice movement, the racial justice movement, um, and uh, it's really exciting to be part of it. Yeah, and then you had a two, two, almost three years of a pandemic on top of that. And that didn't seem to stop the momentum. And in fact, it seems like it kind of increased uh, your ability to really work in the community and particularly into serving them. Absolutely. And um, so when the pandemic hit, all this infrastructure that we built in the community, and by infrastructure, I mean relationships, um, collaborative processes, uh, data collection, data sharing agreements, all of that infrastructure that we had built to deal with academic disparities, 
um, or with the housing crisis or with income inequality, all that infrastructure really just was came it just came into play during the pandemic in a big way. It was almost like we were preparing for this this large scale emergency that hit our community. So the at the onset of the pandemic, the Latino population in San Francisco, uh, nearly 50% of the COVID positive cases in San Francisco were Latinos, even though Latinos only make up 15% mm-hmm. of the city of San Francisco. And we, you know, on the ground, we could see that that was a result of our, um, of our people basically working in frontline jobs that they could not do from home. They had to go out and, you know, work in restaurants or work in uh, under the table construction work or work in the service industry. And they had to keep going to work. So they were getting constant exposure. And then on top of that, they would come home to overcrowded apartments because of the affordability crisis. What we were seeing and what we continue to see is that whole whole families would live in one bedroom. So you might have a three bedroom apartment with three households within it, um, you know, a mom, a dad, and, and a child or, you know, or, 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 or two each in their own room. So there's this tremendous overcrowding um, situation that compounded the fact that the population was getting exposed, then they would come home and be unable to isolate if they were COVID positive. So then it would spread um, very quickly within our community. So um, the city uh, reached out to us and said, um, we know that you're working with many undocumented families. Um, we do, they're ineligible for um, some of the American Rescue Plan benefits, especially the income benefits um, that the rest of the country was enjoying. Uh, we're not enjoying, but utilizing. And so the city knew that, that there was a potential public health crisis if we weren't able to reach the undocumented folks who were impacted um, the most actually. Mm-hmm. And so they asked us, given that we knew the, the undocumented residents, we had them in our database, they were a text message away for us um, because we had that sort of relationship and trust with them. The city asked us if we could utilize those systems that we had built to uh, distribute emergency income relief, uh, housing assistance, um, uh, even small business assistance and PPP loans um, in our mission district business corridors. And so we distributed t- tens of millions of dollars in um, relief funding. And we also worked with the public health department to reach uh, these families that were unable to um, isolate or quarantine when they're positive, And we would connect them to um, hotel rooms. And this was called the right to recover uh, program. So all that to say, Barbara, is that, again, all the trust that we built as a uh, community provider, as a community collaborator, and all the systems, data systems, um, distribution systems that we had built before the pandemic just really came into play. Um, The city utilized these systems, philanthropy used these systems. And I think the big lesson for us was, wow, Look how quickly the city and philanthropy and the community could mobilize and on, in a large way and move large amounts of resources very quickly. Um, and, and let's not let this collaboration muscle 
go away if when the pandemic goes away, because income inequality is still going to be here. The housing crisis is still going to be here. And we're going to need all of this type of collaborative muscle uh, to, to have an equitable recovery. Um, so that's where we are right now. Those are, those are the conversations that we uh, are a part of. Uh, and uh, it's, it's exciting work. And so, I mean, we saw what happened in um, like a, a rural community that both in you and I have been working with in Watsonville. They kind of have that same kind of collaborative nature, but it's really a, an important part because both of us have been involved in government of well, how important it is to have the trust of the community and particularly you can use, uh, you literally use the community-based organizations to help you do that. Um, and so I think that's a beautiful story, Richard, in terms of um, a positive note of a terrible pandemic. Right. Yeah. And, and I, you know, you referred to a group that we're working with, um, a, a coalition in, in Watsonville, and I just want to shout them out when I learned about their experience and met them. Um, it's, it was just so uh, affirming to hear how they also came together as a community and worked collaboratively, worked quickly, um, and, and at, you know, at the community scale, um, to get emergency resources to the community. Um, and, and I don't, and I, I don't think that, you know, they are the only ones, we are the only ones. I think that this happened in communities across the country. That's and right. so we're at this opportunity right now to, to not, to, to tap into what has been built in communities across the country by necessity and tap into those so that we can address the longstanding inequities that are, that many of these communities have been facing um, in a kind of new, more collaborative way. Yeah, and you've been a big supporter of Collective Impact. Uh, would you share with the listening audience a little bit about Collective Impact and, and how it's really been a beneficial model for you? Yeah, so Collective Impact, um, I'm a big believer in the Collective Impact framework and approach. And I think the, the foundation of Collective Impact is this awareness that the problems that our communities are dealing with are too big for any one person or one agency or one elected leader to address. These problems, in fact, require all of us to work together um, to address them. And so, so some of the central tenets of collective impact are bringing stakeholders across from multiple, uh, together from across multiple sectors, and then through a structured planning process, agreeing on a common agenda and agreeing on some um, accountability measurements about to, to, talk, to show you whether or not you as a group are achieving this agenda that you set out to achieve. Um, other tenets of this include um, constant communication and transparency, because when you bring people from different sectors together, communication is just central to that and trust is central to that. Um, and so we've been doing that um, with our Mission Promise neighborhood for, for 10 years. Um, and it's just, it really leads to this development of community or civic infrastructure. Uh, that's just incredible to see. And it's a reminder to us as as human beings, that it really does take a village um, to raise our children, but also to just 
take care of each other, to see each other as neighbors um, and to step up for each other when we need uh, help, um, which is, you know, a natural part of being uh, a human and, and stepping up is a natural part of being a good human. So yeah. um, I can go deep on that. But yeah, that's in a nutshell what collective impact means to me. Yeah, and it's been a really, uh, I think, an incredible model for uh, what I've seen you do in San Francisco as well. And I think you played uh, a backbone model for that, which is the organization that kind of helps with all those details and logistics. If you think yes. about how we respond to emergencies, there's always a logistic group that's really important, calling those um, those meetings, taking those minutes, and you know, really doing that hard work to make sure all that communication happens. And so uh, I see it's been a really beneficial model for all of you. Yeah, thank you, Barbara. Absolutely. We are a backbone agency, which is a term of art for collective impact is that there does need to be a backbone agency kind of owning this collective initiative. And you're right, we do uh, set up the meetings, we take, you know, we, we draft the agendas in collaboration with, with the partners and we take the notes. And we also do things like um, collect the data and yeah. we have an evaluation team that is able to kind of re collect, <clears throat> collect and report out the data um, and also um, do communications work so that everybody's in the loop on what's happening. Um, so yes, backbone agency uh, is key to this work because somebody just needs to kind of um, own the administrative side of exactly. this collective work. That's right. That's right. So what are you excited about in the coming year? Uh, Richard, I know you are all doing so much, uh, so many different things. You're doing a lot of work nationally and, you know, sharing your model across the country. Um, what are you excited about for this coming year? Oh, my goodness. There's a lot happening this year. Um, so one thing is that we are celebrating our 10th year as a promised neighborhood, which is a big accomplishment because the original grant was for five years. Every promised neighborhood grant is only for five years. And it's difficult to sustain it beyond that time period because a promised neighborhood can cost you know as much as $4 million a year to operate. Um, and so we've been able to uh, survive beyond that five years by um, having the city and the state and philanthropy all come, come in and, and uh, invest and create this kind of braided funding um, for the initiative, which is a reflection of just that this is a cross-sector initiative. This is a community-wide initiative. So we're celebrating that. But I think what's equally exciting is that we're saying to the city of San Francisco, why do we only have one promised neighborhood? Shouldn't the other neighborhoods that have a history or a legacy of inequities, like the Bayview, which is traditionally uh, the black working class community of San Francisco and Chinatown, which also like, like the mission and the Bayview has been redlined. Um, and uh, other neighborhoods, shouldn't they also have this sort of um, robust uh, community collab collaborative uh, collaborations with a backbone agency coordinating that? And shouldn't this be um, part of maybe the normal way that our city does things rather than kind of a boutique way that one neighborhood enjoys? And so fortunately the city, um, is in agreement with us. And so 
working with the city, we launched the Promise City Initiative. And our goal is to be the first Promise City in the country, meaning that um, Promise neighborhoods are not boutique initiatives uh, for a couple, for a look, for one lucky community, but rather that they're throughout the city in the in the hardest hit communities, um, and that they are very much in alignment and intertwined with city policy and budgeting. Um, and so what we're doing is we're, um, all of our partners are meeting with the city and um, looking at, at the mayor's recovery plan for children and families and making sure that our collaboratives um, are going to be in alignment with the city and the mayor's vision around recovery. Um, and our goal is that uh, we institutionalize this, we normalize this way of doing things. We think it is a, it is a social justice strategy. It's a racial justice mm-hmm. strategy. Um, these communities were redlined because of the races of the folks that lived in them. Um, and so, um, so we're excited about that and we're being invited to speak nationally about this approach mm-hmm. um, and to share with others. Others are excited about it as well from, um, from our colleagues in other neighborhoods, our counterparts in other neighborhoods across the country, but also um, elected officials and funders want to know more about this approach. So we, I said earlier, like we think this is the future, this could potentially be a model for the future of government, a, a future of government where government is more community centered and more data-driven and more accountable to the community. And so uh, we feel like we're on our way toward achieving that. Well, that's great, Richard. And I think uh, you've played an important leadership role in that. We really want to honor you on um, accomplish that in San Francisco and you're on the road to that. So uh, thank you so much. Gracias, Richard, for your time today. And uh, we're so proud of your work. Thank you. Barbara, I'm I'm proud of your work. Uh, I've admired you from from afar for years, and it's been a pleasure to get to work with you more closely over the last year. And so thank you for being a trailblazer and a role model for our community. And again, I'm very honored to be on your show. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Okay, thank you. Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold. Healthcare untold.